Next hour on most of these the same frequencies. Hello ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the program. Today we are going to talk about a rather serious topic, the future. This is Cracking the Code with Sadir Ispahani. In this episode, Mike LaJoy, founding partner of LMT and Associates. Mike Hayashi says that my leadership style is called slap and tickle. <laughs> you ever heard that? Never heard it. You have to be demanding and you have to you have to set clear goals for people and expect more than they think even they can deliver. But at the same time you have to you have to be kind and you have to be supportive and you have to recognize their own greatness and, and, and nurture them and give them an environment that they can work in. As Chief Technology Officer for Time Warner Cable, LaJoy was an innovator. He says innovation will drive the future. It's going to get smaller, it's going to get faster, it's going to require less power, it's going to generate less heat, and it's going to become less expensive. I think all of those things are what is driving the massive innovation in technology today. There are massive capital resources at work to continue all of those things. Now your guide for cracking the code, Sudhir Ispahani. Aloha, Mike LaJoy. Welcome to Cracking the Code. Aloha, Sudhir Ispahani. Thank you. And uh, it's been, first of all, a privilege for me to, to know you. But also, uh, I'm honored to have you as a guest on the show today um, and uh, to realize that, uh, you know, for the many, many opportunities we've had to interact, uh, that your uh, journey uh, personally and professionally is a very inspirational journey. And I hope that the next generation of leaders who get to hear this podcast um, pick up golden nuggets of wisdom from uh, the incredible life you've had and the very successful one you've had. So uh, this show is about uh, paying it forward to the next generation of leaders in uh, allowing us, uh, I've had that privilege of knowing you among a very small base of leaders who uh, have been uh, not just successful, but who really um, lead from uh, using heart-first philosophies and a set of morals and values that, uh, that matter in creating successful businesses. Welcome to the show. Mike, I'd like to start with taking us back a little bit to your childhood journey. If you will, please start with where you grew up, how life started for you, and how you got thrust into this this world of technology and leadership. Hmm. You want to go all the way back there, huh? I was born in Santa Monica, California in 1954. Yeah. And uh, Santa Monica is in the western part of Los Angeles. It's a beach community. I grew up in uh, Brentwood, which is adjacent to Santa Monica. And, um, you know, Los Angeles of the 50s and 60s is very, very different than Los Angeles of today. Right. Uh, it's, it's nowhere near as congested. Uh, you know, it's not as sprawling and as big, not as many people. Um, interestingly enough, it's cleaner now than it was then. 
Right. When I was a child, we used to have smog days, a lot of smog alerts where they would they wouldn't let the kids go outside and play recess. And I have I remember my eyes burning and I remember my chest hurting from breathing in the air. It was so bad when I was young. Yeah. Wow. You know, preteen. Uh, Santa Monica Bay, when I was young, was dead. There was no there was no fish life in Santa Monica Bay. When you walked on the beach, you, you always would get these big clumps of tar on your feet um, from the uh, the leaks from the oil rigs, the offshore near shore oil rigs. Wow. Uh, because uh, and, and like I said, the bay was dead. There's no fish there uh, because, uh, you know, we I guess as a. I guess as a, as a culture and as a society, we were less aware of our impact on the environment. And, um, you know, it, it just, it's, it's stunning to me that now today you go there and LA is still a relatively smoggy place, but it's nothing like it was when I was a kid. It's so much cleaner, no tar on the beaches. The Mm -hmm. oceans are, are in fabulous shape. The fish, the fishing there is phenomenal. Fish life is great. Um, so anyway, that's that's where I grew up. My father, uh, my father was a hairstylist, um, and uh, you know he worked hard. And uh, my mother didn't work, and my dad worked long, hard hours. He was he came from very meager beginnings. Um, he was born in Queen of Angels Hospital in downtown L.A. Never knew his father. Uh, he went. He was in the Korean War. He was in the service, but he never went to college. Uh And he um, he was actually injured in the Korean War. He was a medic, and he took a mortar shell as he was crawling to somebody else to try to help them. And um, and he still, uh, just as recently as five years ago, a piece of shrapnel worked its way out of his body from the Korean War. And uh, so... I learned from my dad. I had three brothers and one sister. And um, my father taught me the value of hard work. Because mm-hmm. he worked. That's all he knew how to do. Um, his mother was, he never knew his father. His mother suffered from, um, I guess, what would be bipolar disease, what they would call it today. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and so from a very early age, she would uh, she would become mentally unstable and then she'd get carted off to a state hospital. And he and his brother would. <laughs> he just took a picture. That's not good. <laughs> he and his brother uh, would get put into an orphanage. Well, that happened to him twice. He was put into an orphanage. And then yeah. from there on, from like when this happened, when he was eight years old, he hid from the authorities he would not go back into an orphanage because it was so horrible. And so from the time he was eight, he took care of himself and he knew how to work, knew how to work. He knew how to take care of himself. That's all he knew how to do was work. He, you know, he's a kind, loving man. He's a great guy. And um, if I can be half the man my father is, I would be, I I, I would have achieved a lot. Uh, So, Grew up in West Los Angeles, surrounded by people with huge money, super wealth, and we were fine. You know, we had we had 
good clothes to wear, nice house to live in, always had food, never went, never wanted for nothing, but I was surrounded by huge wealth. And so my perspective as a young guy was skewed. I thought we were poor, uh, but we weren't. We weren't poor. We were, we were quite well off. It's just that we were surrounded by people that were super wealthy. I, too, am a high school dropout. I did not finish college. <laughs> um, I did get a high school degree. I went to some college. But from an early age, I found that I was, uh, I was kind of an autodidact. I, I learned much better by doing and by I teach myself by reading and by, by experimenting. Um, I, don't, I don't learn well in a structured environment. So uh, I taught myself. I taught myself how to how to fix cars, how to how to design and build machines, how to run machines, run lathes, run mills, uh, you know, how to build things. And um, I was working in uh, production machinery, production companies, manufacturing companies. I worked for Papermate Pen, and I worked for Easton Aluminum. Easton Aluminum makes baseball bats and ski poles, and at that time. Workflow in a production environment was managed by creating circuits. You would create these logic circuits to manage workflow, to move parts through machines and through the manufacturing and packaging process. Mm. And you would do it with circuits that were created, logic circuits created from hydraulic valves, pneumatic valves, photosensors, physical limit switches. But you would create these logic circuits. It was largely Boolean logic. They actually, you could buy valves that were not valves, or valves, nor valves, exclusive or valves. Um, and you would build these circuits together and say, if not this, then that. And a, and a valve would fire and a part would move. You know, if the, if the light shines through this aperture, then the pin is pointing the wrong way. You need to spin the pin around. So then you would actuate a spinner. And then mm-hmm then the pen would drop through because it was oriented the right way. The point is, it was all it was all done with hydraulics and pneumatics and limit switches, physical sensors, optical sensors, photosensors. Mm. But it was essentially workflow logic circuits. And then along came the integrated circuit, the IC. Right. And I at this time I'm designing and building machines to manufacture baseball bats and ski poles and arrows and, and we're using all this old stuff. And I find this, find this Zilog chip, this Zilog 8000 chip. And I went, wow, look at this. I don't need all these freaking valves. Valves wear out. They get dirty. They clog up. Their, their timing and their responses are, are spongy. Man, digital circuits don't do that. Integrated circuits don't get spongy. They're, they, survive, they survive dirtier environments better than, than analog, analog circuits built with valves and, and sensors, right? So then we started using those things, and uh, that's where I first—that's where I first found the integrated circuit. First started messing around with integrated circuits. First started messing around with—I actually used a um, an Apple II to run a punch, a tape punch for a CNC machine for machining parts. And yeah. it used to be that you would have to—you'd sit down and you would make these—you'd make these tapes to feed through a paper tape to feed through a CNC machine. The only way that you could edit the tape, you couldn't edit the tape. Once you made it, you couldn't edit it. You had to run the tape to see whether or not it worked. So you'd ruin a part or you'd make the part right. And if it didn't work, you'd have to figure out where in the tape you had the error and then start over and <laughs> it again, right? 
Well, I, I hooked up a CNC, I hooked up an, an Apple II with a Claris Word Pro, I guess. Claris Word, it was a Word, it was an early Word program, not, not Word, but an early, um, you know, uh, right, editor, early editor. And I would, and I figured out how to hook up this tape machine using this Apple II, and I could write a script in this editor. Uh, and then I could use the editor to go punch thing, punch the thing out. And then I could look at the tape and figure out, okay, this is right or wrong. And then I could go back and edit it. I wouldn't have to start over with this archaic freaking piece of tape and figure out from the punch holes where the error was. It was just early problem solving with things like that that I got involved in technology. This is 70, late 70, 76, 77, maybe 78. Right. Maybe it was 78. Yeah. Mm. Ah, I mean, I remember messing around with those Radio Shack TRS-80s and the Osbournes and, you know, all those early, those early portables. I, the first computer I ever built was called an IMSI. It was a kind of a hobbyist's computer. It was called the IMSI 8080. It was, a, it was called a front loader. <laughs> and it had, it had eight switches on the front in one bank and three switches on the other. And the eight switches were for setting, a, you know, a number from zero to 255, right? And then you'd push one of the switches over here. There was load, run, and print were the three switches over here. So I could, you could set the switches, and you could load it into memory and set the switches again and load it into memory. Set the switches again and load it into memory. And then when you ran it, it would, and then you could run it, and then you could print it, and you get a little piece of paper that would come out and said two plus two equals four. And I thought that was the coolest thing that was on, you know, on the face of the earth. MSI eighty eighty. That was a fun machine. Yeah. And that that's one that I we built. I built it out of a kit. That was my growing up. So we'll, we'll continue this journey, and uh, you know, fascinating to hear that uh, there are pieces of information, even though I've known you for years that I picked up on this conversation that uh, that we hadn't uh, talked about before. Clearly, your curious mind brought you to a, to a foundational element of success for most of us, uh, you know, in, in the area of innovation. And you've been a, a very, very thought-provoking, innovative leader, uh, you know, during your uh, incredible career. And the industry highly respects you, you know that. So take us back again to that childhood where, uh, you know, you said one or two very important things. Uh, about observation related to your dad. Obviously, adversity taught him a lot about uh, work and uh, what it means to, to create success for yourself. How much of that observation became part of your reality of saying, look, I, I've got to really uh, create something for myself in life? How much of what you, you saw and, and learned from him became part of who you are as Michael Joy? Well, I think I think quite a bit. I think early on, he taught me the value of hard work. I think he uh, he taught me the value of perseverance. Right. And, and I guess that less the lesson that I learned from him is that I can shoulder any load. Mm. I can shoulder any load. All I do is shrug it and get it in the right position and keep on trudging. That's what mm. that's what we do. And as long as I can pick my feet up, God's going to put them down for me. Mm -hmm. I can shoulder any load. There were other lessons that he learned, that he taught me that I didn't know, I didn't recognize until later in life. And 
they had to do with loss and how we process loss. Mm. And ultimately, the lesson that he was showing me, not, not intentionally showing me, but through the way he lived his life, was the lesson of service. What drove me to be successful? Um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of what drove me to be successful early on was selfishness, which is not a very good value. And self-aggrandizement, um, those, are not, those are not particularly good values, but they can lead you to personal success for a while. You can, through sheer force of will, many people can go and garner things unto themselves and become materially successful. But that's not a lesson my father taught me. That was something that I, I had to learn. I had to learn later in life. I had to learn about loss. And I heard, learn, had to learn about surviving loss. Picking up on that thought, clearly, you know, you, you've now taken us through a part of that journey where, uh, you know, uh, you're at the cusp of, of learning about technology that actually this generation would never have even heard of or tried to imagine, you know, try to talk to somebody today about integrated circuits and Osborne computers and Apple IIEs. Nobody would really, you know, this generation won't understand it. But... Uh, Clearly, those foundation, uh, foundational uh, computer infrastructure has really become the, the basis of what we all experience and enjoy seamlessly today. But uh, walk us through a little more, Mike, uh, through this fascinating journey of yours of how you then, then moved into uh, being thrust into leadership in a form uh, I don't mean in your last role, but actually through through that journey of getting to different places. But I, I do want to also ask you to expound a little bit from your very heartfelt uh, nature of uh, what you just said, which is talking a little bit about what loss taught you and what adversity taught you through that journey. I made a transition in the late 70s. I got out of, uh, I got out of technology or out of, uh, it wasn't, you know, then it was manufacturing that I was doing. I was using technology in the in an, as an application in the production of the the manufacturing process. But uh, I actually became a stockbroker, and as I became uh, became a stockbroker, I learned I learned different things, and and that was just something that you know I decided I wanted to I wanted to work in finance, and I was a uh, and a stockbroker at those days was was largely a sales job. But I wanted to work with money, and I wanted to figure that out. And um, so, as I said, I became a stockbroker. So as I'm doing that, I was successful at it. And partly because I'm, I guess I have a gift of gab. People kind of trust me. But it was really just getting on the phone and calling people and asking them to make investments. It's a different world today than it was then. And I was working for, you know, a name stockbrokerage firm, and, and I, I did well. Then I had this event that happened in my life. My first wife was killed in 96. I just turned 26. And uh, it changed me. It changed my perception of life. Mm. I, that, that loss just completely threw me for a loop. And it took me several years to process that loss. I stopped, with, I stopped being a stockbroker. Um, I'd only been doing it for about four years, three or four years. The... Um, I guess when I quit in 82, but I had been successful, a very interesting time in the market, a lot of mergers and acquisitions, a lot of stuff going on, and, and I had been successful. And then I, I went back into, I went back into computers again. I went back into 
messing around with stuff. So in 82 now, I mean, the, the IBM PC didn't come on the market, I think, until 1984. Yeah. So now I was back in messing around with apples and Apple peripherals and all this other stuff for the Apple II and the IIe and something that I thought was really interesting. And um, I ended up learning how to write software in all of that uh, and taught myself how to write software. Met met some guys at a company called AIM, which was a uh, company that was contracting for Philips at the time and mm -hmm. got involved with defining the specifications for compact disc audio. It's called the Red Book. You remember the compact disc, that five and a quarter inch disc that many kids today wouldn't even know what the hell it was. But <laughs> uh, and that revolutionized the music industry. And I met the guys at Warner, you know, Warner Music, and became friends with the guy who evangelized the compact disc from a business perspective, a guy named Stan Cornyn. Stan took a liking to me, and uh, at this time. You know, I had this unique set of skills. I had this understanding of how mechanics worked, and I understood how computers worked and electronics worked. And I had this sprinkling of business knowledge and understanding how finance worked and the stock market worked. And so it's just this combination of stuff. But I'm still kind of reeling at this point from the loss of my wife. So I wasn't highly functional. And But then I, then I finally, one day, I kind of woke up in 1986. I kind of woke up and I said, look, I said to myself, look, I'm, I either have to, there's this line from the Shawshank Redemption, the movie, you got to get busy living or get busy dying. Right. And, and I needed to get busy living. And so at that point I changed, I really changed things around in my life. And I just said, you know what? I got to stop this. I got to, I got to start, I got to get on a straighter path and a focused path. And so I started just, I just, I decided then, at, then and there that I didn't know what life meant and I didn't know what the value of life was. But the one thing that was clear was that there was an opportunity for me to be of service, that I could change my reason for being on this planet to one of trying to figure out every waking day, ideally with every breath I take, how can I make this moment an opportunity to serve? to make things a little bit better for the, for the fact that I passed through with no concern of what I might get. If instead I fit myself to be of maximum service to the people around me, then mm. I can be taken care of. This is a bountiful universe. Mm -hmm. What we give, we get. And if I give in great measure, I receive in great measure. But not if I'm... Not if I'm giving in order to receive, but if, if I'm just giving to be of service, it's the it's the it's the it's one of the basic laws of nature. I think the law of giving and receiving, and I figured out that I figured at that time that I that that was to be my life, that I was to be of service, that I was gonna I was gonna take whatever whatever gifts that I was blessed with at birth, and I was going to use them for for good to be of service to others, and uh, and so that's what I started doing. I'll tell you, it was the most, it's probably the most enabling aspect of my life. Um, mm -hmm. it, is, it has taken me places, and sometimes it's taken me places that I, that I didn't expect to go, and, and, I and I was maybe taken advantage of in some ways. But in, in so many ways, um, I was blessed and rewarded so far in excess of the times that I was, that I was not so. Yeah. Um, that, you know, in essence, it made my life very, very worthwhile. And it wasn't about the reward. It was about, it was about the act. It was about the act of giving. So 
this all dovetails into leadership too, right? Yes, absolutely. If I show up with the attitude that I'm here to help, yeah, I just I want to be of service. I'm here to help. I'm here to make you successful. And by the way, if the environment isn't good in this particular set of circumstances for me to be able to do that, that's okay. I can move on. I'll I'll find someplace else I can be of service. No rancor, you know, no no regrets. I'll just I'll, mm-hmm. But if I show up with an attitude of service and I'm here to make you successful, how can it is indomitable? It's irresistible. And good things flock to that kind of energy. And mm-hmm. if I can surround myself with people of the similar attitude, then what you have is you have this you you build these wonderful teams of people that are all willing to pull for the common good. Then you create value and and then everyone gets rewarded, you know. And, and the next thing you know, uh, you know, you, you, you're surrounded with a bunch of highly successful people that are building things that are valuable to society and humanity. Uh, and, um, you know, and, and you're happy and fulfilled. Hearing you talk, and of course, you know, we've had many wonderful chats uh, over the years about life. And uh, I see how you sort of uh, continue to exude that even in, in, in retirement, Mike. And uh, you continue to sort of inspire and encourage those around you too to sort of live through that, the basic tenets of life, which some of us tend to forget at times, you know, and I think uh, one of the milestone moments you just talked about, that loss piece, just coming back to it, uh, became a learning for you and, uh, you know, a moment of coming to realization that, you know, it's really important to get busy living or, like you said, get busy dying. And... uh, your choice of doing that became an incredible learning opportunity for you to become the kind of leader you were. So coming back and picking back up to where Warner Music was the place you sort of started doing some interesting work, take us now through that journey of how you became an incredible thought leader in the world of cable and broadband. Love to hear uh, that journey. And It's kind of interesting um this guy, Stan Cornyn, that I talked about from Warner Records, he's, he was the guy that evangelized Compact Disc Audio. And so Compact Disc revitalized the music industry. because yeah. Everybody went out and replaced their entire music select collection. Yeah. All the vinyl that you owned, you went and bought it again in Compact yeah. Disc. And you paid more money for it. And Compact right. Disc was cheaper to make than vinyl. So, <laughs> so Stan was the fair-haired boy for a while. Stan was given a lot of leeway, and Stan decided that the next thing to do with Compact Disc was uh, called CD-ROM, CDI, CD Interactive, the yellow book and the green book. The audio spec was called the white, was called the red book. CD-ROM was the yellow book. Uh, CDI was the green book. LaserDisc was was the white book. Remember those (laughs) big laser discs, the 8 and 12-inch laser discs? So Stan was, was, uh, there was a brief kind of period where CD-ROM was supposed to be the the medium that brought interactivity to your computer, interactive programming to your computer. This whole thing about, you know, you'd have this, these interactive disks and you would play games on them or you would learn on them and, and you would have, uh, you know, all these repositories of data and you'd carry all this stuff around on CDs, right? 
Yeah. And so I got, I went to work with Stan at Warner New Media and we started creating all this stuff. And that was in, I guess, 88, 89, something like that. Then, uh, in 92, uh, Jerry Levin, who was the who at the time was the CEO of Time Warner, Time and Warner merged in 91, 92, something like that. Jerry ended up being the CEO of Time Warner. And Jerry was the guy that evangelized putting HBO on satellites. Right? <laughs> so he, did the, he was like one of the superstition guys. So anyway, Jerry was always looking for the next new technology trick to make his career. And he liked this whole interactivity thing. And he decided that he wanted to do, somebody asked me to get involved and help build a demonstration of what two-way interactivity might look like on cable. So we built this demo of this thing like using laser discs of what it might look like with a four camera shoot and, you know, being able to select things. We built some, you know, just some funky little applications. The next thing I knew, Jerry said, great, let's build that in a cable plant. And it's like, no, 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 no. This is just a demo. This was this. Is, I mean, I don't. Know. I have no idea how to build it on a cable plant. Well, we got involved, started working with the guys. Warner and uh, Warner, Amex, and um, and Time Inc. had merged their cable properties, and we had now this Time Warner Cable Company and uh, ATC. It was ATC and Warner Cable merged and became Time Warner Cable. And we decided we were going to build this thing down in Florida, a full service network. And I got involved with. Now Joe Collins and Jim Chittix and um, Clint Britt and met all these guys that were there in the early 90s. And we decided we were going to build this fiber optic network and we were going to do this whole two-way plant thing. And we we're going to build these interesting applications and yada, yada. So we went and built it. And we built these, you know, 4,000 homes. And we connected these. It was fiber all the way to the home. And uh, very interesting. Built video on demand. Built. Uh, that's where we first tested high-speed data over cable. Uh, first tested voice over cable, 1993, 94. And it was, you know, revolutionary. It was a it was a test bed. But it was at that point where I happened to get thrust into the limelight of this of this <laughs> of this crazy system. I'm still a contractor, by the way. I'm not even an employee. <laughs> and I'm in a meeting where I'm talking about and Joe is there, and Jerry Levin is there. Joe Collins was there. Jerry Levin was there. Uh, Jeff Holmes, this other guy. And, and I'm talking about how I, we're building this team of people. We're going to build all these applications, and we're going to make this whole full-service network thing work. And, and everybody's kind of listening, and, and, uh, and I'm pitching these ideas. And, and Joe says, what's in it for you? And I looked at him, and I said, uh, I don't know. I just want to help. I just want to, I want to be there. I want to do this stuff with you guys. He goes, and he looked at me and he says, you know, I think you actually mean that. And I said, I do. I just want to know. <laughs> that, was my, that was my start of the career with cable. And, um, you know, we built the full service network, uh, built a lot of applications for it. I, I was not in charge of building it. I built a number of the applications for it. And uh, then we started messing around with Interactive Program Guide with this group I had built in Burbank. Um, then we unwound that group and... And I was kind of a free agent just looking at new technology and got involved with uh, IP telephony and, and more with Doxus. MCNS was the first specification around cable modem. Uh, I got involved with the teams of people working on that. You know, one thing led to another. With cable labs and all of that, you were a very critical component of that innovation. Yeah, for both cable modem and for uh, IP telephony, 
we launched the first large-scale video-on-demand trials. You know, and it's interesting. I started out working on these CD-ROM things. It's all interactive right. stuff that you're going to do on your computer. And then somewhere along the line, this, this little protocol that I had messed around with several years before, this thing called TCP-IP, started actually got released by DARPA and universities and came became this public internet thing and then this then the next thing you know you get this you know dub 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 organization and you got the interweb you know <laughs> you know while we're working on interactive tv and it's i remember in the late 90s people say well is do we, when, when are we ever going to have interactive television i said as soon as they created the remote control you had interactive television what are you talking about yeah. Phone's ringing over there, but I'm going to ignore it. So it was just a, a matter of, you know, being in the right place at the right time, showing up with the attitude of service. And as as I'm asked to do bigger and bigger things, and then I'm then you know, people are asking me, well, what's it going to cost, and how long is it going to take? And I I don't know. I would sit down and figure it out. I'd say, well, okay, if it's going it's going to cost this, and it's going to take this long, and you know, and then usually you get the response, okay, you get half as much and half as long, and then you say, okay. Or you say, no, I can't do it. <laughs> and uh, uh, But, you know, eventually you start getting authority and you start, you know, people are saying, okay, start delivering on those promises. And then you get into, you, then, then at that point I'm thrust into the position of, of actually leading organizations and, and leading projects and delivering things as a result. And I'm less away from, sheer technical innovation or, you know, product innovation or writing software or building machines or anything, I guess, more managing money and leading people and managing time. A key element in being a business leader is being able to translate effort into time and money. Mm -hmm. So translating output into time and money, right? And there's a the intersection of, of innovation and demand at that at that intersection, right? Yields product, yeah. right? So it's great to have, or, or the, actually, the the intersection of invention and demand is innovation, and that yields product, right? right. So you can invent something, but if people don't want it, <laughs> you're never going to innovate anything because people don't want it, right? So, yeah. but if you invent something that people want, you get an innovation. If you can then Translate that into how long does it take to build it, and can you scale that? Can you scale that? Then you have something that creates cash flow, which is yeah. unfortunately cash flow is king. But it's it cash flow. Cash is the is the it's it's the nominal representation of people's people's desire. It's the nominal representation of value. Clearly, you 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 are following this track of. Intense technical innovation, and then obviously, like you said, uh, you know, you've given more and more responsibility, and people became part of that responsibility, and then eventually, business objectives and the world of business and finance had to become part of it, because clearly, uh, you know, you're you're retired of a very illustrious career as the chief technology officer of Time Warner Cable, um, very very vast responsibility of both people and financial domain. Um, when did you start feeling, look, this is something I'm enjoying. I really want to build on this. I want to become better at it. I want to successfully execute as a leader. That's an interesting question. I never really thought about things that way. I've always thought about things as what can I do right now? 
Mm-hmm. I mean, I have, I, I think it's, I think that it is uh, valuable to plan. I think it's valuable to set goals. Right. I, I think that, uh, you know, nobody ever built a house without thinking about it, deciding what it was they were going to build in advance or people have, but oftentimes they don't work out very well if you don't plan well. And that's good. And I should do that. I should set those kinds of goals. At one point, when I got out of way early on, when I got out of stock brokerage and went back into technology, I set a goal for myself. And the goal was I wanted to be on the leading edge of technology, working with world-class technologists and creating valuable product. Mm. That's, I wrote that down. And that's what I wanted to do. Um, I had other goals in there, too. You know, I wanted to remarry and I wanted a nice home and I wanted, you know, I wanted a comfortable income. Uh, but none of it was ever I want to lead thousands of people. I want to manage billions of dollars. None of it was ever that. I wanted to create value. I wanted to create things. And as an adjunct, as an adjunct, when, you know, when you set out to do things like that, you end up, as I said, you end up being asked to deliver. If you say you can, you're asked to deliver. And then, and then you're given resources to do that. So to me, I guess I, I never really, I never set out to be, uh, you know, the leader of leader of large groups of people and, and managing mass amounts of money. It wasn't a goal of mine. Um, it just, it happened. And it happened because I wanted to create, I wanted to work with world-class technologists and I wanted to be of service. Very interesting, Mike, to hear you share your uh, your journey. Clearly, leadership, uh, you've been very successful at. But if you had to define that style as you developed into becoming the kind of leader you were very successful, what would uh, a good definition of your leadership style be? I, I shudder to think of the people that worked for me. But, you know, you defined success was an incredible thing for you and in, in what you did in, uh, at, at Time on a Cable. Mike Hayashi says that my leadership style is called slap and tickle. <laughs> you ever heard that? Never heard it. Well, it came elaborate from, on that for me. I, I guess, I guess I, part of it is, is that I, you, have to, you, have to demand, you have to demand excellence from the people who work for you. Mm-hmm. You have to demand that they exceed their own expectations and that they believe that they can do these things and they, and they make the effort to deliver on these things. They're outside their own, their own expectations. You have to demand that from people. And I worked hard. Uh, I worked long hours and I expected people that were with me to work hard. And mm-hmm. work. I used to tell people when one sleeps, we all sleep and I'm not tired. And, uh, <laughs> Uh, so, but at the same time, you have to be, you have to be demanding and you have to, you have to set clear goals for people and expect more than they think even they can deliver. But at the same time, you have to, you have to be kind and you have to be supportive and you have to recognize their own greatness and, and, and nurture them and give them an environment that they can work in. Right. And so at this one point, I remember in one meeting with this guy, one of the guys that worked with us in the organization there, his name was Bill Helms. I don't remember exactly what it was, uh, but we were struggling to get some. We were struggling to get a bunch of software developed for millions of set-top boxes, and and I asked Bill the specific question, and he kind of sat there, and he looked at me, and he hesitated to answer. I said, "Well, Bill, you're going to answer the question." He says, "I will." He says, "But I'm trying to figure out whether I'm being slapped or tickled." <laughs> that means <laughs> what he meant by that was, "Am I being am I being punked here and urged urged along, or am I being cajoled and supported?" 
look, I, I think that it's, you know, the basic things. You have to take care of the people that work for you. They have to know that, that I mean, they're going to get the credit, you know. Tr- you know, you used to, you, you'd hear it sometimes, the troops eat first. Uh, you know, you got to make sure that, God bless, you can't take credit for other people's work. Mm-hmm. You have to reward people. You have to point out the effort that these people have done. You have to surround yourself with people smarter than you. Uh, you have to give them the opportunity to grow. You have to work yourself out of a job. You know, all of these things, if you don't do these things, you're never going to grow as a leader. If you're not willing to take the risk and to raise other people up and put their well-being ahead of your own, you'll never be a leader. Mm. Not, a, not a real leader. If you don't put other people's well-being ahead of your own well-being, no one will trust you. They will see you for what you are. That's so very true, Mike. And, uh, and, and you know, I've just seen very short glimpses of that in the little interaction we've had and having you, uh, you know, uh, be the, you've been a, a very, uh, you've been on several boards and, uh, you know, startups and other large firms. And I've seen a little bit of your leadership style there and and you really, you, you carry your uh, leadership morals uh, right from your heart and pass them on to people and and I've seen that in you. How do you believe that uh, the future of technology is moving? Clearly, you, you, going back to those early days, you've seen incredible innovation, and yet here both of us are sitting in 2019. Uh, Share a little bit about where the future of technology is going from Michael Joy's perspective. You know, the future of technology. Where is it all going? It's going to get smaller. It's going to get faster. It's going to require less power. It's going to generate less heat. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and it's going to become less expensive. I, I think all of those things are what drive, what is driving the, the massive innovation in technology today. And there, there are massive capital resources at work to continue all of those things smaller faster uh, consumes less power generates less heat and costs less money those are the trends that have enabled the growth in the information age Mm -hmm. and those trends aren't going to change they're going to continue and the reason why they're going to continue is because there are massive capital resources at work that need to continue those trends. I mean, people used to ask me, aren't you going to run out of bandwidth? How are you going to afford this growing demand for bandwidth? I used to get that question from analysts every year. And I'd say, no, I'm, I'm never going to run out. I, because of the capital envelope that I have to spend, there's all these other companies out here that are spending, that are pursuing their business needs to deliver me what I need. And I need it twice as fast for half as much every 18 months. That's right. what I need. And by the way, it can't take up any more space and it's got to consume less power and generate less heat. But all <laughs> those things are happening. Right. And it's, it's an undeniable trend. I think this is the other thing too, and being a successful leader is being able to, to be able to spot macro trends, being able to spot on things you absolutely can rely. Right. Yeah. So, 
one of the things those are that's I think you can rely on that. It's going to get smaller. It's going to get faster. It's going to generate less heat, consume less power. It's going to cost less money. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're talking about the technology that we're talking about, right? I don't know. I there are certain things that aren't going to cost less money, and that's that's human labor. Mm-hmm. I think human labor is going to continue to cost more. Uh, yeah, just because of inflation. So you know, but I think that. Um, you know, you look at you look at I, I don't believe see, I don't think that I don't think the growth in the usage on the Internet is demand driven. People don't know that they people don't know that they didn't people didn't know 10 years ago that they wanted to consume all of this 4K video on their computer from Netflix. They didn't know. Nobody knew that. Nobody was asking for that. Right. It, it's it is all supply side driven. The growth in that stuff is supply side. It's because Intel has to keep making chips that go faster. It's because Cisco has to keep making making uh, switches that, that process more bits. It's because, it's because Sienna has to keep making optronics that process more light. And Seagate has to keep making <laughs> magnetic media that spin faster and, and, and pack more data on smaller disks, right? Yeah. So... VM Labs. VM Labs has to has to make a bigger platter that is that that has a that has a uh, you know a higher degree of liability on the substrate, so you can place smaller and smaller parts on a smaller and smaller piece piece of silicon. It's just they they all have to do it in order to justify their business. You know, you you put it exceptionally well in the uh, layman's terms about where technology is going, and clearly, you know, if you look at infrastructure, of course. You uh, you have to take a lot of credit for having built out the broadband infrastructure that a lot of the this country is uh, is uh, enjoying today in the world of cable broadband. But clearly, uh, wireless is becoming a a big force in that. And uh, give us a thought or two on that and where you think the convergence of networks is happening and will happen over the next few years. I think that that wireless is. Uh Wireless has got a feature that is so valuable, and that's that it's untethered. You can move yeah. around. I mean, you have to plug it back in because you've got to recharge it. But for the most part, you can use it, and, and it's untethered. It does not work as well as a wired infrastructure or an optical infrastructure. Transmitting transmitting bits over the air uh, is challenging, and you know, because you've got all this other stuff. But without having a, a dedicated physical medium to move the payload through, like a piece of coax or a twisted pair or a piece of glass, you've got to just do it over the air. Much more challenging, right? It costs a lot more right. money to do it that way. But from an access perspective, you know, the last 300 feet, the last 500 feet, or the first 500 feet, based on your, a user's perspective, it's it is so powerful because it's because you're untethered, and and over that length of distance, uh, I think that that it can. You know, it can continue to grow. The challenge is that as you try to accommodate more and more bits uh, using a wireless medium, the way that you do it is you you have to. I mean, you can come up with you know more. You can you can come up with more effective uh, signaling protocols to get more bits per hertz, more bits per cycle. And the cycles do continue to go up, right? So in the terminal devices, the handsets or the or the laptops or the pads, whatever you're using, 
the cycles and the radios go up. And so naturally you get, you, you benefit from that as the, as the radios can cycle faster and, and look at a, at a, in a higher order sine wave, then they can get more bits. But the ability to keep up with a wired infrastructure is very difficult. You can't keep up, but for the last 300 feet, I think it's great. And, and the value of the value of having an untethered service for an from an access perspective is so great for users and it makes it makes it invisible. The best technology is absolutely invisible. Mm. It is. It's you don't even know you're using it, right? That's true. And, and wireless is that way. I think that that more in that wireless will continue to innovate. I think that wired infrastructure, first of all, it's just the last 500 feet or the last 300 feet. Uh, it, then it gets to a wire. It, the the payload gets to a wire very as quickly as it can, either a wire or a piece of glass as quickly as it can, because as you aggregate the, the, the demands and the, and the throughput, the two-way throughput from, from all the users, as that pool gets bigger and bigger, as you expand out from 300 feet to 500 feet to 1,000 feet to kilometer to, you know, it, the, the number of users in that, in that area become bigger and bigger and bigger, and the throughput on that wireless carrier becomes unsupportable. That's why you have to get to a wire as fast as you can, right? Mm -hmm. So I think it's going to continue, and I, I think that for high-end usage, you know, I, I don't know. I look at 5G to really get gigabit speeds uh, out of a wireless uh, wireless access network. It is going to be so expensive because they have to segment the network to so many nodes. I mean, they have to put in right. two orders of magnitude more radios from a 4G macro network to get to a small cell network. It actually works. It's going to take a long time. Now, you could roll it out in spots over a period of time and make the investment, but I'm just not sure that it's that it that economically it makes sense from from an operating perspective to be able to provision customers wirelessly and and provide a great service experience to be able to keep up with the with the you know the ongoing demand boy to provision the stuff is so much easier if you don't have to go manage drops and go you know if you once you if you're if you're using a wireless a wireless carrier or you know, wireless is your medium for carrying the payload. It, it's I, I think that you can operationally you can justify it. I think eventually you're going to get there. Eventually you're going to get to the point where all service providers to people's homes to their to their businesses. I think it's all going to be fixed wireless. Well, I, I you know I definitely agree with you, and I really by the way appreciate you expounding on those thoughts related to where things are going because I know you're still a very even though you are retired, you are a very active voice and uh, intellectually you you are very engaged in the, in the global conversations with our friends and colleagues in the industry and uh, you continue to stay very uh, very engaged in what's happening in the world of technology and and services as we come to winding down this show mike uh, i have one or two other questions for you and uh, first of all really appreciate everything you've shared because I do believe in the world of digital as you and I know this is going to stay there forever the podcast and hopefully it reaches many to allow our younger generation leaders to think a little bit about uh, what it takes to to create value and lead and and be part of part of life so to speak but I do want to uh, to ask you this one question when you meet somebody what is the one thing you hope to instill or leave them with? When I meet someone new? Yeah. I want to connect. I, I want to look them in the eye and I want to connect. 
That's yeah. it. I just want to connect. It was hard when I was very, very busy. Uh, because so many people knew me and I and I didn't know people and it was hard to connect. I find now today I'm mm -hmm. less busy and I'm able to, as I meet people, I'm able to connect and I want to look you in the eye and I want to get your attention and I want you, I want to give you mine. I just want to connect. This gift of life is the most amazing blessing. This awareness, this consciousness of our existence and of one and, and of one another is, is the greatest gift. And I want to share it. I want to be awake and I want to connect with you in my wakefulness. Very powerful statement. And, uh, and by the way, I, I feel that way every time I talk to you, just so you know. And for me, that has been a privilege. You're a very special guy. I wouldn't do this podcast except with you. I know you've said that many times, and that's why I feel honored and privileged, uh, you know, to even call you a friend. But your smile, by the way, is extremely infectious. That's, um, that's why I was very intrigued by what you were going to say when I asked that question, you know, because I... I know that uh, you know you uh, you've got a very endearing spirit to you when you talk to people. Um, with that, Mike, I do want to ask one final question, and this will uh, you know hopefully uh, close our show out. But it's one I'm sure you've given some thought to. I know I have, and uh, I do want to ask you what you would want people to remember you by. I don't know. How would I want people to remember me? I guess larger than life. That's the thing that, that's the thing that popped into my head. Mm. Just larger than life. You know, I mean, Sadir, I just, I want to drink it all in. I want to embrace it. I just, I just want to soak it up. It's just so brief that we have. That's true. Uh, and I just want to soak it up. You know, what a powerful statement. By the way, that's very reflective of who you are as Mike LaJoy, somebody who has always been larger than life. Your giving spirit is something that I've been a small beneficiary of, but um, but you do look at life in a very large sense. And I think maybe those early adversities uh, that you experienced in life and, and those moments of loss translated into moments of energy. Yeah. It is something that's freeing that has that has freed me through the rest of my life mm. because everything was taken from me. Everything that I valued, my image of what my future was, was stripped from me. And I had to I had to regain my perspective of life. Mm. And the, the gift in that is that I survived it. And if you can survive losing everything, what can you do to me? How can you hurt me? Because mm. I can survive it. It's been an incredible hour plus here with uh, Mike LaJoy. Mike, I'm blessed to have you as a friend, to have you share so many things about life. And I hope that this podcast will create some opportunities for people to learn from what they've heard about Mike LaJoy's life. You continue to bless people around the world. I know that. And I know every time I talk to you, even though it's short and sharp, 
uh, you put a smile on my face and that I'm always privileged. I feel the same about you. You're, you're my brother and uh, it's really been a pleasure to get to know you better. And I, every time I talk to you, I get to know you a little bit better. And so I love you. Thank you, brother. Sadir, again, you have brought us a pioneer and an innovator, someone who played an important role in creating the technology and infrastructure that is now at the core of so much of our daily lives. Yet, unless you grew up before it happened and, and was here, you may have no idea. Michael Lejoy's path is not through a university or a fateful internship at a legendary laboratory. He started by building machines to make fountain pens and baseball bats. He began in an analog world and realized how much easier it was to use digital switches in his machines. How did he get on this remarkable path? He did it by just trying to be helpful with a mission to make a contribution. He met the right people, he attended the right meetings, he offered the best ideas, and he was able to make a difference. Hearing about pioneering the development of interactive television under the guidance of Time Warner Chairman Jerry Levin was also very interesting for me personally, since I worked for Ted Turner at CNN when Turner Broadcasting merged with Time Warner and Levin became our boss. It was there that I anxiously watched each innovation in the tools to deliver the content that I was helping to create. Mike LeJoy is now one of my heroes, along with your recent guest, Dr. Jan Udenfeldt, the father of mobile communications. For those listeners who haven't heard that episode, please download it. Both of these men were innovators who tell their stories, sharing the backstory of how we got to where we are today with technology, with the internet, with communications, with the thing you're holding in your hand right now, that smartphone. Without these guys, we wouldn't be there yet. I can't wait to hear your next episode, Sadir. <laughs>